Hey everyone, welcome back to Bending Boundaries, a podcast sponsored by the Northwest Social Science Doctoral Training Partnership, which straddles topics of equality, diversity and inclusion within universities and doctoral education. In this podcast, we talk about the amazing new research being done by PhD researchers, and we discuss our experiences of being parts of groups who are not often represented within academia. With monthly guest interviews, we discuss a variety of themes which relate to the research being done by PhD students. In today's episode, I interview Malika about her work on women in academia, and we discuss the theme of equity, equality, going back into a PhD after having worked in industry for years, and the emotions that are connected with that. But before that, let's have a quick catch up. So guys, how have you been? What have you been up to this week? Oh, actually, sorry. The question is, what are the best and worst parts of your week? Sarah, do you want to go first? Okay. Um, the best part of my week was probably that I actually wrote something for the first time in ages for my PhD. Really? <laughs> uh, it's been a long time. Um, and it was very much a little word vomit, but I actually made me feel like good about it again because I've had a bit of time out. Um, that was probably the best bit. The worst bit, Mm, quite hard to know (laughs) 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 nothing like that very bad has happened this week which is good you know we we cherish those those weeks um it's just very cold Mm. the usual Mm. british complaint is the weather the weather's (laughs) definitely dropped over the last like week or two that is okay Mm. (laughs) global warming's calmed down for a minute (laughs) now it's cold again Mm. yeah yeah Reminds me of the song, Baby, It's Cold Outside. Because <laughs> it's very, very cold. Nice and cozy. <laughs> cozy <goodness. bars. laughs> what about you, Ibru? Have you done uh, what are the best and worst parts of your week? Um, the worst part of my week. I don't even know. It's been such a busy week. And I feel like at the same time, like time passes by so slow when you start the day at the same time. We're like at the end of November. But I think the worst part just has been that lots of meetings got rescheduled or like canceled. Mm-hmm. So that forced me to like um, reschedule many, many days last minute, which was a lot of stress. But I don't want to complain because everything worked out in the end. Um, and the best part of my week has actually been um, attending a panel discussion yep, with you so good. Megan, last <laughs> night. So, um, and at this point we can also share with um, Saren. So last night we attended a panel discussion um, that was um, about the anthology called This Arab is Queer, hosted by Homotopia, which is oh, an so arts cool. and like social justice organization here in Liverpool. And um, so... This Arab is Queer is like written by three authors um, who happen to be Arab and queer and Palestinian. And they were talking about how they navigate shame and the feeling of like not being Arab enough whilst not being queer enough. And um, like notions of like authenticity. And it resonated with me on such a deep level. I was telling Megan, I'm like getting so emotional because I I really was. I really was. It was so good because it was so vulnerable and so honest. And they did not mind answering any questions. And the way I am, I took a lot of notes and I asked a question. And they were like, that's a very deep question. I'm like, I know. I'm so sorry. Take it your time. It was a great time. moment. I enjoyed it. <laughs> I guess I should pick with your notebook and be like, okay, I have a question. 
<laughs> yeah, because like heads were turning. They're like, um, what's this person doing with their notebook? I'm like, I know I'm a nerd. Um, and like one thing that like one of the authors said, and I quote is, he said, my Islam was stolen from me. And it was so emotional because he was speaking about how he was robbed of a religion that at many points in his life was giving him like comfort and peace. Um, and that now has turned to him being depicted as an anomaly because of the media and the weaponization of religion, the weaponization of Islam and having to justify your existence on a daily basis. And that made me feel so emotional because it was so, so vulnerable. And that was by far the best part of my week. And I wish anyone could have attended it was really good it was definitely like that sounds so cool a highlight of my week as well i think it was yeah the conversation was really interesting and, and the speaker that um Ibra mentioned i don't remember his name but he um yeah like lived in jordan he was 57 like it was like a, a perspective you don't like hear very often and yeah the openness of the panel yeah, it was, it was just, yeah, it was really interesting. Um, I mean, the best part, of, this was a little bit before this week, but it was part of the Homotopia Festival as well. It was like the opening night, which was um, at the Tate and there was um, a drag queen cabaret and it was just such good vibes and like amazing performances. Uh, yeah, I think that was like one of the best things recently. So good old Homotopia. Like, I think it's an every year thing as well. Um mm and yeah it was just a really like good experience and it's nice to like get into Liverpool but outside of the uni as well it's like it's not just like university focused it's like the rest of the the city exists and has like interesting people which is fun (laughs) um the worst part of my week I think is so Ibru's talking about scheduling issues I feel like I've been the person creating scheduling issues for people (laughs) like I keep on like uh, yeah I've missed a few appointments or I was just late and I would just turn up and just kind of forget about things I think it's a symptom of like of being more busy with the PhD I'm just Mm. I don't know I I think I have too many calendars or something I don't know what's going on because I'm a quite a punctual person (laughs) and like quite an organized person so when yeah that's the impression you get it's like it's yeah so when I don't do it it's like this is out of character and I don't know what's Mm. happening but I think it's just getting you I can't imagine you being late for anything It's just I don't turn up and I'm late and I'm like, this is not, yeah, this is not acceptable. Not not acceptable. Obviously people can be late, but yeah, I'm not a late person usually. Um, Shh, don't tell me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I did everything perfectly. The PhD is perfect and I, I'm a perfect uh, student, but no. <laughs> it, it, I think especially there was a moment where it was a Zoom meeting and you know when Zoom sometimes opens your camera when you don't tell it to? And I was like, mm. literally just getting out of bed and uh, like, I looked like it was like dark in the room and stuff like that. And then I was oh, like, no, he was like, turn off the camera really quickly. It was, um, yeah, it was very embarrassing, but I don't think anyone saw me. I hope anyway. It probably made someone else's day on that. Yeah. Moment, so. <laughs> like, this voice has joined late and they obviously have just woken up. Um, <laughs> and it's not 9am. It's like 10 or 11. And it's just like, this is not right. But yeah, that was probably... Yeah, as someone who likes to be on time, it's like, oh, this is, yeah, mm. this is how the other half live. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so th- is there anything like PhD related that's been going on that we should tell our listeners about? 
as this is a PhD podcast, I guess. <laughs> mm. Yeah, other than like just attending <laughs> it, I'm like thinking, I'm like, mm, I have been going to the office, getting used to it. I'm going to go to an event in Manchester and I'm excited about that because I like the idea of travelling. <laughs> what event are you going to? It's like there's an organisation called Code. It stands for something, but I'm not sure what. But I think it's like early career researchers who are like um, from minority mm. backgrounds and stuff like that. And there's like an oh. event in Manchester in December. So I'm like looking forward to trying to go to that. I think it will be, yeah, I think it'll be a fun experience. I want to do some in-person stuff. I think I mm. like Zoom, but mm. I miss... I like the free tea and yeah. the coffee and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like once I finish my field work, I want to start going to more in-person things. So I think it will make me feel a bit more inspired and, mm. you know, a little bit more like, I don't know, part of something. Because sometimes it can feel a little bit isolating, even if you are going to an office and stuff. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I started my data collection, which is exciting and a lot yeah thanks it's a it's a lot of work but um I think many people who just like going into the second year starting data collection can like relate it's uh, it's a lot of work with like interviews and but it's so exciting I think that's my favorite part but then again I love I love writing as well Mm. so it's hard but it's cool (laughs) it's like the big step I feel like a lot of stuff leads up to it I guess the whole PhD mm, structure yeah. around it. So it's like first year you prepare for your interviews, the last year you write up your interviews or your research. So yeah, it's well done. Good work. Thank you. <laughs> it's it's also that sort of thing where like as you say, like the whole PhD is kind of structured around you doing this research and mm. it's almost like you prepare so much to do the research, you think. And then when you start doing it, it actually feels a bit like you don't know, you don't feel prepared at all. Or well, I didn't anyway. I was suddenly just a bit like, I've been going to all these classes about doing research and like data collection and all these things. And now I've started, it's like, oh, well, actually it is something that I just have to make my own way through. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be fun to like hear more about your guys' research and then I guess like, I'll start preparing more as well to do mine. Yeah. It'd be great. Um, so yeah, I guess that's the end of our quick catch up. Um, for our listeners our structure of our podcast is going to be a little catch up for us and then an interview with another phd student and then we'll come back for a debrief after but um ibru is leading this um episode so i'll let you introduce your interview Woohoo! So now onto the interview where we discuss transitioning into a PhD, leaving the workplace, and the hopes and challenges associated with going back into academia. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Bending Boundaries, where we challenge notions of the stereotypical PhD student and aim to encourage diversity, representation, and celebrate more diverse voices in academia. Today's guest of honor is Malika Benkahla, a teaching fellow and PhD candidate at the University of Liverpool, whose research explores the journey to equitable representation, particularly the experiences of women in academia. Prior to starting her PhD studies, Malika worked a decade in industry and directed her own consultancy business, which is amazing. With that being said, we wish you a very warm welcome to Bending Boundaries, Malika. So happy you found the time to be here with us today. Thank you for having me. I actually wanted to start with an 
icebreaker. Yeah, let's do it. So, Malika, and we did this in our first episode as well. I'm going to ask you a would you rather question. Okay. <laughs> would you rather have a tattoo of the title of the last book you read or the last TV show you watched? A tattoo? Yes. I haven't got any tattoos. <laughs> What did you watch last? Was it another murder mystery? It was, yes. <laughs> I'll admit, the last thing I watched was, um, it was Jeffrey Dahmer on Netflix. Yes, you don't want to have that tattooed. No, not today. Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, but probably, if I did have a choice, it probably would be the, la the last. If I did have to choose, it would be the last book I read. Um, however, I probably wouldn't get a tattoo because I'm incredibly indecisive. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's good to know. I always think people either have one or they have many. So could you tell our audience a little bit more about yourself and your fascinating research? Yes. So um, where should I begin? Uh, so I... Start, would you like me to start with my academic Any journey? Yes. Anything yeah. you... Where you want to start? Uh, so I'll, I'll start off with, I guess, in school then. I really loved uh, science. I was really into history. And uh, the school I went to was in Liverpool. Um, and not many people around me at the time had experience of, of further education. And so I thought, what can I do that's going to get me a job? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I started my academic journey in biomedical science actually so very different field um, although now I come to realize it's not so different from social science so I did an undergraduate degree in biomedical science at Coventry and had a really enjoyable experience there um, decided when I finished that that actually working in a lab probably wasn't for me <laughs> so I did um, about six to twelve weeks I think it was working in a lab uh, doing some research on some bacteria it was quite interesting but um so you got into research quite early then, I did yeah, yeah yeah so I I have always had a passion to discover things mm -hmm. and for me as a young person it was always about um trying to find out new treatments for things uh, that actually stems from my granddad um had a um really complicated Uh, condition mm. that I got diagnosed with when I was about eight years old and I always wanted to um, find a new treatment for it and that's what's about my interest in research and I guess as I went through my teenage years I thought maybe maybe this is something to make a career of um, so yeah that's I guess where my research interest started amazing um, and then yeah I finished my undergraduate degree I went to um, work in industry so I was working at a coffee shop while doing my studies uh, also worked in bars and restaurants and all kinds of different all places jobs, yeah. <laughs> yeah. as you do when you're an undergraduate student and you need a bit of extra money um, and yeah I ended up managing a coffee shop um, then doing a graduate scheme and then yeah doing a master's after I did my graduate scheme And then, yeah, PhD. So that's just a bit, a whistle-stop tour, I guess, of how I ended up doing those different things. Not None of it was particularly planned apart from the science degree, which I very quickly learned that it wasn't actually for me. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think I stopped planning things so so meticulously after that point. So Amazing. And you're going into your third year now. I am, yeah. So uh, 
my master's was actually in human resource management so Mm -hmm. it was very far from science and it stemmed from actually being a a human resource business partner HR business partner in industry and wanting to get some more credibility because I had this degree in science Mm -hmm. which was not anything to do with coffee in the coffee industry (laughs) and so I thought you know maybe I should get an accreditation in in, the, in this space and a master's came up. I was really lucky that I had a, I say lucky because I had a really supportive manager, a HR mm-hmm. director at the time who um, she encouraged me to do not just a CIPD, but actually go and do a master's, um, which is something interestingly that I had always intended on going back to university. I just mm-hmm. wasn't sure when or what. Um, and doing that was probably one of the best things that happened to me. I realised that that dream that I had when I was eight years old um, was, you know, could be realised and could be a real a real thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Amazing. I think it is so important to have people that actually can show us that we can do something that we could have not, that we didn't think we could do. Yeah. Having those people that can encourage us, especially perhaps, especially if we come from backgrounds where we don't necessarily have people that have the same academic knowledge that we may aspire to have someday. So yes, you are right. Um, I had very few people around me when I was growing up that had been through the university experience or even a role model. As a matter of fact, I did have a few people and it was mainly teachers in my secondary school that had been through a university experience. However, their experience of university was limited to their educational qualification, um, family and friends, there was really nobody that had been through that experience. So yeah, it was was a challenge, I guess. Yeah. I always think those pathways that are maybe, um, that swayed away from the stereotypical pathway are very, very fascinating. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit, a little bit more. So, um, yeah, before we dive into our next questions, I'm just going to talk a little bit about how we met for the audience. So, Malika, you were the very first Liverpool local that I actually met when I moved to the UK last year. And um, you were assigned to me through, like, our university's buddy scheme that is part of the PhD program at the management school. And, um, yeah, we were paired up um, because, in I think, in many ways, our research... Um, has common denominators. And um, I really have to say, I could have not met a more kind person to give me the courage I needed that I can succeed in a country that is not my own and doing a PhD in a field that is not tied to my humanities and English literature background. So, (laughs) um, yeah, we met at a vegan cafe. And I think um, you had opened up to me how, like, your topic changed throughout the first year of your PhD. And um, also, like, how important cross-disciplinary expertise can be and the opportunities that a different kind of background can actually open up for a PhD. Yeah. So with that being said, um, in light of your journey stepping into academia, what did that exactly look like? I mean, you already mentioned that you have a bachelor's in biomedical science, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So and how far did that actually help you? Yeah, uh, that's a really great question. Firstly, thank you for mentioning how we met (laughs) and that's very kind of you to say I'll I will give that credit to being from Liverpool actually because I would say uh, 
I know that we are bending boundaries, but a sweeping stereotype about people in Liverpool, um, if you don't already know, it's listeners. The Scouts. That, yeah, <laughs> Scouts are usually extremely friendly and um, I take great pride in that actually, so thank you. Uh, yes, so could you just repeat the question again? <laughs> yeah, so would you mind walking us through how you got to pursuing a PhD in business at management? Because yes. I think it's so fascinating because I think a lot of our listeners, myself included, our background is in something entirely different. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously I've talked about having a passion in research, um, which I think is very important if you do have an interest to do a PhD. Um, but... Yeah, I can absolutely walk you through how I ended up going from biomedical science to business and management. So I think biomedical science, although when you read that and then you look at human resource management as a master's and then you look at a PhD in business and management, they probably appear on paper to be quite different things. And that drastic transition between biomedical science and into business, um, probably for a lot of people might appear as strange um, or you know, um, unconventional. Yes, yeah. that's a really good <laughs> word to use, actually. But I, but actually, there are so many similarities that you can draw. So, you know, science is for me. It's all about discovery. Um, and if you look back in history, you know, I read about scientists over the you know, different generations, and that there's something about the skills of a scientist. Mm-hmm. I think, and you know, inventors across mm-hmm. time that I can like draw a real similarity to um, Mm -hmm. on a personal level. And the idea of of making things better, I know that sounds really basic. Transformation. Yeah, that that concept, I think it's always been like part of my like core personality Mm -hmm. um, and my values about, you know, um, improving the way we live. And that could be through science in terms of, uh, how we treat people um, in a medical or a biomedical background versus how we treat people in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that the transition wasn't easy. I'm, I'm going to be very honest, um, as you say, it's to move from biomedical science to management. However, there are some similarities that you can draw. So science, all about discovery, testing things, you know, method is very important in science. Mm-hmm. However, um, and I come to realise this when I began the PhD, <laughs> is that um, actually scientists um, in in the biomedical space often are, you know, thinking one way. They're, they're often positivists. Yeah. And when you move into social science, you know, the idea of being a positivist is 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 kind of frowned upon by by a lot of the social science world. Yeah. And that's okay. Um, and it opened my eyes to the, the fact that actually there are lots of different ways of interpreting things, of seeing the world and of seeing things, which which actually sung to me more than perhaps a biomedical um, lab environment did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in biomedical science, when I was doing my undergraduate degree, there was a lot of right and wrong. So you do a test like this, there is a right way to conduct things and there is a wrong way to conduct mm-hmm. things. And not to interrupt mm. you, just as a like a frame of reference for our audience, a positivist basically looks at the world in black and white yes. as in the existence of one objective truth. Yes, yes thank just- you. Yeah, so, and when you move into social science, you realise that there are actually lots of different ways of interpreting the mm-hmm. world and seeing the world. And there are lots of different philosophical stances that you can employ to to look at things. And so, yeah, I I do see a lot of similarities between them two. Mm-hmm. However, a lot of people externally might not. 
And if anybody, I always say this to, to people, if anybody thinks that they've done one subject in undergraduate and then they might have messed up, perhaps. That's a, a phrase I often hear from people is, you know, how can I move into a different discipline? But the reality is, is you know, the skills that you learn in an undergraduate degree mm-hmm. and a postgraduate degree, the master's or another, mm-hmm. you know, they are they are skills that are fairly transferable. Mm-hmm. And so you, you can always draw off um, what you have done and apply it in a different way and, um you know that that phrase you can take lemons and make lemonade i guess mm-hmm. i've always thought about that as in the th- the experiences i've had and the skills that i've learned so mm-hmm. always taking what i have and being resourceful with those things so yeah. um just because i had i hadn't done an undergraduate in business and management it didn't mean that i couldn't go and do that masters mm-hmm. and in turn when i was making my phd application it was a real challenge not to let the fact that i hadn't done a business mm-hmm. and management degree put me off that application potentially because mm-hmm. you know there are so many people around you that are applying for PhDs right and yeah. they'll say you know well I've got this experience and it all seems on paper that their experience is always more credible than yours perhaps mm-hmm. um but yeah I think whatever you've done it's about being resourceful with what the experience you have got and trying to sell that in a way that um puts you in the best light and mm-hmm. you know to a, somebody who's making a decision about whether to recruit somebody on a PhD. Um, my learning, I guess, is it was all a bit of a mystery when I applied, but I think the reality is is it's not only... They don't only look at your CV and mm-hmm. what you have done and what you haven't done. There's a lot more that goes into it, mm-hmm. I think. And I can imagine that, like, your 10-plus years in industry also mm. shaped the way how you perceived the application process. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I think I attacked the application. Attacked is probably the wrong word. I approached the Mm -hmm. the application process as if I was applying for a job. Yeah. And so for me, it was about what experiences do I have? Mm -hmm. Um, However, you know, I I did feel that because I did have those years in industry, that might actually be a... um, a negative thing uh, perhaps or a barrier to entry because I mm. hadn't spent so long in academia I had gone off in industry and done a couple of years doing mm. my own thing and more than a couple of years but yeah I, I think in some ways the experience in industry presented me with lots of opportunity mm-hmm. but in other ways it did fill me with fear that mm-hmm. maybe it was too late for me to apply for a PhD mm-hmm. maybe I'd spent too much time in industry and, and didn't have the necessary uh, criteria to mm-hmm. fit in with what a PhD mm-hmm. student would look like, you know. Thank you so much for being so honest and vulnerable with that. It's actually something, the role of choice, challenges mm-hmm. and fears, transitioning out of the workplace or the industry yeah. into academia. It's something I want to talk to you um, about today. And that's Part of the main reason we invited you today on our podcast, because from an equality, diversity and inclusion standpoint, we believe there is a lot of value in sharing your experiences with decision making. Again, as I said, challenges, fears and hopes um, that are very much a part of making the active choice to return to academia after having worked in industry for such a long time, particularly in exploring the ways your practical experience shaped your entire research journey. And of course, we always want to see who the person behind the research is. So with that being said, how are you finding your research and the PhD journey in general? Is it what you expected? 
great question. Thank you. Um, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I began my PhD at a point in my life where, except for the second time in my life, I was at a crossroads. First time being when I finished my undergraduate degree and I couldn't get a job in, which I didn't mention earlier, mm-hmm. I did actually apply for many jobs in science um, mm-hmm. because even though I'd had that experience in a lab and I'd done that research and it wasn't quite for me and I sort of had a feeling inside that maybe working in a lab all day and not communicating with anybody wasn't necessarily the best job choice for me, I still proceeded to apply for jobs in that space and realised about six months after applying for hundreds of jobs that maybe it wasn't going to work out and had to make a real decision with my career. And for the second time in my life, I had to do that when I was applying for the PhD. And yeah, um, it was a huge decision actually. And Mm. it was something that I probably for the first 12 months of starting my PhD had regular experiences of feeling like, what have I done? Mm. And what is this decision that I've made? This was a really bad decision. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And yeah and some feelings of regret but also I would not actually describe that as regret now mm-hmm. I at the time I would have probably and I probably did as our conversations did happen mm-hmm. in many different cafes over the first <laughs> year we knew each other there were times where I I think I had shared with you feelings of regret but now I reflect back on those mm-hmm. now in my third year and I think actually I'm not sure that that was regret I think it was more um feeling a, a you know I guess ambiguous about what mm-hmm. was happening and unsure. Mm-hmm. And now I would say to people that it was probably one of the best decisions that mm-hmm. I made because whilst yes, I did go through those feelings, on balance I also feel like it's probably one of the best decisions I ever made and I'm really glad I did it when I did it as well. Yeah. I think a PhD is meant to make you feel uncomfortable. And I mean, we always tend to think of a PhD as a linear line where you think of my first year, I'm going to start with my literature review. I'm going to go on to data collection. I'm going to go on to analysis. And then there's the finished dissertation and I'm going to pass. And oftentimes there's so many emotional challenges that we do not expect to encounter. So again, thank you for sharing that because I think a lot of us are going to be able to relate. Um, And I always think it can be so anxiety inducing because I think of our research as a little bit of me search. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is your personal connection um, to your research and what attracted you to doing research on women in academia? Yeah, so I became really interested with the idea of fair treatment at work when working as a HR business partner. Mm-hmm. And that experience of doing a master's really something switched with me so I went from wanting to learn more and mm-hmm. began be, be, the start of my master's I wanted to learn as much as I could so I could be really credible in industry and I could say well I've got a master's in HR so you know I know what I'm talking about <laughs> which obviously is, is not really how it works <laughs> but in my head it did when I started my master's and then as I was coming towards the end of my master's I thought well actually this this has gone from wanting to learn to wanting to explore Mm -hmm. and part of exploring would be around research and recognizing that there are so many gaps in what we do in academia particularly the gap between or the interplay between research and practice um which is something that I felt really 
strongly about because I was sitting between industry and practice because I was working full time and studying part time mm-hmm. for my masters, and I was living that experience. And so I, I started to look at topics that I might be interested in exploring. And yeah, and fair treatment at work was probably where I started. Then I realised it was really more like equity. Mm-hmm. Um, because we talk a lot in industry about equality, but we don't talk as much about equity as I think we should. So what's the difference? So equality being, you know, treat everybody the same, mm-hmm. which is often what we talk about. You know, the law tells us that we should pay, uh, you know, with gender pay in the UK, mm-hmm. for example, since um, a couple of years back, mm-hmm. you know, we, the law changed and we all had to look at our gender pay in industry. Yeah. And since, you know, experiences like that, plus experiences of um you know supporting people through tribunals and mm-hmm. going to tribunals on behalf of companies myself i realized that we were really striving for equality because that's what the law says but really that was the bare minimum whereas equity being about recognizing that people don't always start at the same point and therefore you can't treat everybody yeah. so called the same um actually there's a lot more to it yeah. and i think that's where a lot of organizations were falling down that i was working in experience mm-hmm. it myself personal experience as well being from a mixed background and you know personally experiencing inequity mm-hmm. at work and outside of work um I felt really strongly about you know reading research and not seeing what I was seeing in practice reflected mm-hmm. well enough in research so a lot of research about equality diversity inclusion respect uh, which is now you know termed edir mm-hmm. a lot of it, it was really about you know um, a certain demographic Mm -hmm. and I was reading it again and again and I was sort of becoming increasingly frustrated with that and so that really is a personal passion Mm -hmm. and as you as you mentioned (laughs) earlier I started my PhD wanting to look at these things but not really having a firm grasp on what that was so I remember writing a proposal and I'm probably going to share this and I'm sure a lot of people in the management school might listen to this and think, really, she wrote that in a couple of weeks? But yes, I I was a very last minute applicant mm-hmm. is probably the best way to describe it. You know, I churned out this 2000 word proposal about yeah. what I was going to do. And I remember meeting my supervisors and thinking, gosh, this is really not what I want to do at all. And, yeah. and happened to be really honest from day one that I I wrote that proposal because Mm -hmm. I was so desperate to do a PhD but I hadn't really which I don't think many people do right so I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people say I want to do a PhD and they don't really firm up what it is they want to look at until they actually get there and probably spent the first three months of my experience searching about around them topics and thinking about what it is I wanted to do and and yeah my topic actually changed two times in my Mm -hmm. first year which was which was a lot to, mm-hmm. you know, take on, but we got there in the end. Um, and the story goes like this really is is that I I had the passion of looking at equity, mm-hmm. but then the more I started to explore equity in different workplaces, yeah. the, the more I came across literature about universities mm-hmm. and the academy. And I was thinking, well, I'm, I'm studying in a university, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm studying towards a PhD. If we still have a problem with equity in universities, how mm-hmm. can I move beyond the walls of a university, so to speak, metaphorically, because mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I thought about potentially looking at universities. Mm-hmm. And the more I explored it, the more I thought, well, universities is where we create, disseminate and generate knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so how can we, how can I look at another group or another context 
when there's still so much work to be done here and mm-hmm. that's why I settled on my topic so it's a real like personal passion of mine yeah that is so fascinating you have mentioned so many aspects like that it's so important not to confuse equality with equity yeah. and I think a lot of us um just because we can't know everything, mm-hmm. right? So thank you so much for clarifying that. But also you saying that we don't always start off with the same resources. Yes. For a lot of us, it is a lot harder to access education, to mm-hmm. access education in higher education institutions that have a certain reputation. And um, I think we tend to forget that, yes, there is a certain degree to truth when it comes to meritocracy, yeah. basically working your way up through hard work, At the same time, though, we cannot forget the realities of we do not start off with the same resources. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it's because of our intersectional identities. Um, It is because we do not have the same social and human capital to start Mm -hmm. off with, especially when some of our parents happen to be happen to have an um, economic um, labor migrant background. But um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that and speaking about your journey and how you are how you came to where you are today what have you found striking or surprising so far along the journey so i think for me it's been a huge learning experience coming out of industry and going into academia the pace of how we work is so different and when i was working in industry the aim was to produce as much as possible as quickly as possible and it didn't really matter about depth what mattered Mm -hmm. is that as a business partner in particular it mattered that you you know we were covering breadth of what your job was and that you were delivering all of the productivity measures if you like but not necessarily it with depth so to speak whereas academia is really about depth Mm-hmm. And you can spend, you know, months on a word yeah. or on a topic, as you as you well know. Um, Sleepless nights. Yes, months. yes. You know, 11 hours reading. 10 copies later. Yes, exactly. Um, and 46 drafts or whatever it is. Uh, but yeah, I think that transition, I hadn't quite anticipated how, how much it would impact me. I had to really put my foot on the brakes yeah. um, and just completely change my you know you talk about being a situational leader in management you talk about um you know being agile is the is the big word was or it was when I was working in industry but you know this was a test in completely different Mm -hmm. ways I had to completely reinvent how I approached yeah my my work Mm -hmm. um being okay with ambiguity um and not just being okay with it actually being able to navigate through it as well Mm -hmm. um I think there's a sense of competition between yeah. peers yeah. and the reality is we're competing with ourselves to get over the line with our PhD yeah. yet there is a sense of competition wherever yeah. you go um, yeah. and when you are studying something uh, such as a PhD you're often it's a passion project mm-hmm. so I think you, you use me it me search <laughs> yes which I really love that term actually you should coin that and use it somewhere <laughs> Uh, but yes, so it's a passion project, yeah. uh, I call it. And you've just heard how closely you know, connected I am with, with my story mm-hmm. and my research. But actually, when somebody criticises that, especially when you're in the middle of, you know, potentially trying to 
develop something. Or presenting at a conference. Exactly, yeah. And uh, I'll be honest, the experiences I've had generally are very kind experiences, mm-hmm. which did surprise me because I, I haven't read the literature, had expected the experience to be a lot more um, cutthroat. Can I use that word? Yeah. Uh, as you know, a lot more um, critical mm-hmm. than it actually was. That doesn't mean that that won't happen to me. I think I've yeah. just chosen some very kind environments to be in. But yeah, I think that they're probably the, the pace and having to be super vulnerable mm-hmm. um, and put yourself in a position where, you know, something that's half finished, um, yeah. an idea that you're developing, which you've crafted over, you know, lots of sleepless nights or, yeah. you know, lots of hours of reading um, and thinking can then very quickly be squashed almost Mm -hmm. and that's been a real challenge Mm -hmm. um the amount of change that happens in a phd as well so because it is so consuming it's a passion project you often find that you um it does consume your Mm -hmm. your life and you've still got to have a life so you know it's finding that balance i think Mm -hmm. between i would I mean, my my husband would especially have described me as a workaholic pre-PhD um, because I used to work a lot. Yeah. And I used to work many hours in a week. I used to be traveling all the time. And then I start the PhD and it's a completely different type of work. Mm-hmm. And whilst I don't think he would use the term workaholic anymore, um, he uses lots of other words to describe me. Uh, but friends as well would say mm-hmm. that now I'm, I'm a very different person, personality. Yeah. Um, I'm still me, but mm-hmm. I'm a lot more relaxed. Um, but I'm also always thinking about my research. And that's something that you can't... When when I used to work in industry, although I'd work a lot, when I was off work, be it on a day off or on a mm-hmm. holiday, I was completely switched off. In the PhD, I, I don't think it's as easy to do that. And I think that's a skill that I'm not sure I'll ever learn, mm-hmm. but I will try and I continue to try to yeah. find a balance. So, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. I, I agree. I think a PhD is a total reinvention and a lot of growth when it comes to your personal self. Yeah. Um, but also it's about getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. And I think that doesn't have a um, start and off button. It's, no. it's a, I think it's a continuous journey. Um, and the same with trying to sometimes detach yourself from your project. Yeah. Because um, the critique you get... It's not directed at yourself, but detaching yourself from a passion project, it is difficult. Yeah. Um, but again, very fascinating, everything you have to say. Um, and at this point, I think we should take a quick break. And when we come back, we will talk about the role of choice, hopes and challenges in transitioning out of the workplace and returning to the world of academia and to what we can learn from that. Welcome back, beautiful people, to Bending Boundaries. I hope everyone had a nice little break. I hope, Malika, you had a nice little break. Thank you. (laughs) Your um, extensive experience working industry and then transitioning to the PhD made me think of some key words that I had mentioned earlier, namely Mm. social and educational mobility. Yeah. And the challenges behind that. So 
I'm saying this because many people listening to this podcast, us both included, come from working class conditions and may be children of economic labor migrants and happen to be first generation graduates. Yeah. Meaning many of our parents, for various reasons, did not have the opportunity or the privilege to graduate high school. Um, in fact, research demonstrates there is a strong link between your parents' educational level and your own educational outcomes. But in fact, many of us do graduate high school and make what I call an intergenerational breakthrough when it comes to educational upwards mobility. So with that background, what role do you think did certain resources that you had or the lack thereof play in your mobility? And how did you take ownership of your career starting up your own consultancy business in your early mid-20s? Yeah. Which is amazing. (laughs) And all of that whilst completing your master's. Yeah, I mean, amazing. Some people would say... um, I say it's something (laughs) inspiring. Yeah, thank you. Some people would say quite the opposite. But yeah. Uh, So in terms of my background, you know, I I grew up in a quite a working class environment. I'm one of five. So there was lots of us. I'm the oldest of five as well. Um, (laughs) Lots of us growing up. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's actually a 17-year gap between myself and my youngest brother. So you can imagine what our household dynamics were growing up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my younger sibling and I, we have nine years of an age gap. So yeah. I already thought then I am taking on a parental role, which yeah. I can't even imagine in your yeah, case. Yeah, 17 is um, <laughs> when people... I always I always tell the story when my brother was, was very young, me and my mum went to the shop one day and somebody confused my brother to be my child and my mum and me had to correct them. And, and that was a moment, I think, where I realised that because for me it was completely yeah. normal. It was all I'd ever known. But yeah, yeah for, uh, and, and being growing up in a, a place, I grew up in a place near um, Aintree in Liverpool called Magull, mm-hmm. which is, you know, not too diverse. It's probably the best way to describe Mughal, uh, especially when I was growing up. Yeah. It has quite an aging population and it's it's a small town, actually, mm-hmm. uh, in the very much the outskirts of Liverpool. Um, there's nothing... I mean, I wouldn't recommend a day trip there because there isn't really much <laughs> to see. There. No, but um, there are lots of other places in Liverpool you could go and see that are way more interesting. Uh, no offence to anyone from Mughal who listens to this. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, um, grew up there. I mean, my dad was... Um, well, he's, he's North African, so he's Tunisian. Mm-hmm. He grew up, he's one of 10, um, and he grew up traveling around Tunisia uh, as his father was a policeman. Mm-hmm. And uh, he did get, keep getting moved around for various reasons, which I won't go into for this podcast. But um, yeah, and then my dad's mother, my, my grandmother was, um, well, obviously having 10 children, she she was really a stay-at-home mum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, yeah, and, and so... My dad met my mum on a holiday, which sounds really cheesy. Um, I, I recognise that, but genuinely, it is how they met. Same um, with my parents. Really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's not it's not as uncommon as I think, but yeah, they met on holiday. It's a holiday romance. They got married after a certain amount of time knowing each other, and yeah, they were together for thirty-two years. So my mum's my family are Irish immigrants, mm-hmm. and they arrived in Liverpool I'm not sure which generation it was to be honest with you um, but I know that the history of both surnames fall back to that 
um, kind of part of the world. So yeah, my mum grew up in Liverpool. She was Catholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad was Muslim. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can imagine again, especially in the eighties when they got married. You know that was that was a real uh, challenge for both families. I think um, that was the gossip. It really was, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, and so, yeah. My dad moved over to this country uh, in mid eighties, I think late eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, don't quote me on dates and times because I'm really <laughs> bad at that. But yeah. So so my dad moved to the UK. And um, my grandfather, my mum's father, found him some work in a company called Otis, mm-hmm. um, and they make lifts. Um, I, I don't know if they still make lifts, but if you ever go into a shopping centre or you go in a lift, sometimes they have the Otis logo, and, and that's a company that he worked for in Liverpool. Um, my dad actually spoke five languages. He was working in a hotel when he met my mum. So, mm-hmm. you know, learning languages was part of, um, I guess it was a necessity. However... My dad didn't really have many qualifications. Mm-hmm. Um, he he did this exam called the baccalaureate exam. Yeah. And I think he had to sit it a number of times. He, he would never really share how many times or whether he actually did pass. But yeah, he his educational background, although he was a very intelligent man mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, his, his educational credentials were not really there. Um, I think that's the thing. Like a lot of people would have yeah. had so much potential to yes. graduate with a really good degree. But back then due to several challenges one yes. of those i think the rampant racism running through Absolutely, the yeah. early 80s you know um and not that it has gotten much better i think there's a difference between overt racism and Absolutely. just covered racism but yeah. i think um that's just one aspect of why many individuals especially economic labor migrants might have not had the privilege to to attain yeah. credentials absolutely um that definitely the case um so yeah my my mum uh she finished school and and she worked really hard my mum she had three jobs um Mm -hmm. so she was never never had a quiet day she was always really busy uh but yeah she she also didn't go uh, to college she finished her I think I can't remember what GCSEs used to be called before they were GCSEs but they used to have a a a term Mm -hmm. for them um and she, she did those. And then uh, I don't know if they were called GCs or something. But anyway, my mum finished high school and then she uh, got a job or several jobs, worked mm-hmm. uh, for a while. And then she, yeah, they started a family after they'd been together for a few years. But yeah, times were quite tough. Um, they faced a lot of racism uh, from friends, from or so-called friends, mm-hmm. uh, from family as well. And... They actually, obviously I wasn't I wasn't born at the time, but now I talk to my mum about her past experience and I realised how much adversity and challenge that they faced together mm-hmm. um, to kind of do do the things that they wanted to do and they, they had to do. And, and so after a few years, they had me, followed by <laughs> several many brothers and siblings. sisters. Yeah, <laughs> many siblings, four. Um, but yeah, so that was how I grew up, really. We were very lucky. In fact, I... Whilst I do recognise that there were some challenges and I had a lot of barriers growing up, I also recognise that I was very lucky. Um, I have many cousins. Obviously, my dad's one of 10. And mm-hmm. so you can imagine if all of those aunties and uncles that I have have all got several children. I don't think there isn't one that doesn't have children. 
the number of cousins I have, I actually don't know all their names, which is really embarrassing to admit, but it's true. I know the ones that are around my age and mm-hmm. uh, a little bit older, a little bit younger. But as time went on, it becomes very difficult to keep track when you've got such a large family. I think it's very um, typical for North African yes, Middle Eastern families. Is, like yeah. I have so many 30s and 40s of cousins. Yes. But I... I'm so sorry if any one of them is listening. <laughs> Just putting the love out there. Yes. It's a lot. Um, however, you know, it was great because I do count myself very lucky in that I got the privilege of growing up with, with two cultures and experiencing, yeah. you know, that even though we were, we were very um, working class, mm-hmm. um, is how I describe it, yeah. right? without going into too much detail, we struggled when we were growing up. Um, even though we had that, we still managed to go to Tunisia pretty mm-hmm. much every year. We went for the whole summer holidays. My dad would take time off work. And as a family, we had the summer with our with our family, yeah? Um, and I, it's always funny because I, I say to people, I, I, it was never really a holiday, it was more visiting family. And it's a joke, but actually I was very privileged that I got mm-hmm. that experience growing up because how many people do you know as it, you know, or how many people do I know um, who have had that luxury of you know that experience? I don't know many people, yeah. so I do. I do think there are challenges to that, but mm-hmm. I also think there are there are lots of benefits to that. Mm-hmm. You know, you be, you become somebody who's way more aware of your peers mm-hmm. from a younger age. You're able to understand, and I grew up with the knowledge that there are different people from different places who have different cultural norms yeah. and take the time to understand that, whereas a lot of my peers at a younger age possibly didn't quite have that yeah. uh, sort of awareness. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so it took you a lot of not only hard work, but also facing adversity in terms of coming from a mixed racial background. And yeah. I think oftentimes, I mean, I am not mixed. I'm just of what I consider a fully woman of color. (laughs) But, um, and I face adversity ranging from microaggressions Mm -hmm. to overt acts of exclusion on a almost daily basis. But then I think there's unique challenges as a mixed person. And still you worked so hard and you made it to the point where you started up your own consultancy business. So it took so much and then you made the act of choice to come back into academia. What inspired you to do this? Yeah, I think, um, so growing up, I did did face a lot of barriers and challenges, you know, and I guess we've all faced these sort of subtle comments and I still face them today, to be honest Mm -hmm. with you. Um, And my parents always taught me that, you know, having an education was the most important thing, even though it wasn't something they had practiced themselves it was something that was ingrained into me from a young age and my grandparents like my grandfather before he got sick was like you know it was there was always this notion of you're a woman mm-hmm. so you're, it's going to be harder for you yeah so you gotta you gotta work harder yeah. if you want the things and so I guess that is something that was from a very young age something I was very aware of yeah. so that um drive and tenacity mm-hmm. was there I think, you know, if somebody said to me, and I remember this really well, I'll tell you the story before I talk about how I go into consultancy, is I always remember being told, you know, oh, you might not get to university. Yeah. Or you'd be lucky. I can. Yeah, in secondary school. I went to secondary school. I always worked really hard. Wasn't the brightest kid in the class, I'm going to be honest, for lots of reasons. 
Uh, but I but I wasn't. I probably wasn't the the kid in the class that you'd they'd look at and you'd go, oh yeah, she's going to go on to a PhD. Never in my wildest yeah. dreams. I'd even the thought of doing a degree when I was in my teen teenage years. Yeah, that was like so far. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember results day when I was 18. It's mm-hmm. one of the days I do remember. And I remember getting that envelope and thinking, gosh, if I've made this, I'd actually made plans over the summer to do something completely different because I was convinced I wasn't getting into university. Mm-hmm. That That is how how much it had sort of affected me. And But I remember somebody saying to me that, that you, you'll be lucky if you make it. And I wanted to prove them wrong. And I was like, no, I will. I will make it mm-hmm. and I will do it. Of yeah. course, there was a lot of, uh, <laughs> there was a lot of anxiety in the background and I, I don't think I've ever let that person see that um, they're not in my life anymore but yeah I, I always wanted to kind of if somebody told me I couldn't do something then that was actually the fuel for me to go and do something um, and do it really well as well so that was from 18 and as I went through my career um, I, di- I did face particularly in the workplace actually mm-hmm. I remember applying for jobs when I was 21 and my surname became a real barrier and I noticed it because I did a little experiment which is probably I'm going to admit <laughs> this now and I probably like if I was doing it in research terms I'd have to do like a full ethics application and it wouldn't be classed as overt research it'd be definitely classed as covert but I remember applying for jobs with a different surname mm-hmm. just to see and I did yeah. I got callbacks yeah with a different in first name and surname sorry because my name when you read my name mm-hmm. and then you meet me yeah they, they don't match mm-hmm. from what society deems as, you know, you read my name and you think, firstly, I get misgendered all the time yeah. because of my surname. It's Ben ben Carla and uh, or it's actually in Arabic, it's Ben Kahla. And mm-hmm. so they read the Ben and they think, right, Mr. Ben Carla must be. <laughs> and then they meet me and I'm Scouse. And I do look, if you looked at me in the street, you might not, you might not believe I was half Arab, but I am. Um, and then you hear my accent and I'm a bit of an enigma, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> and so even in the workplace, I worked a lot with people in the south of the country. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't realise is actually it's not just about being from a mixed background and having, you know, dual heritage mm-hmm. and, you know, and being from a working class family. That yeah. that wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that was enough to be a barrier. Yeah. But actually being from the north and having a Scouse accent and not going to one of these elite schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll tell you a funny story in a bit about the first day I arrived at Liverpool, actually. But all of this actually became an issue day in, day out. So not only did they get my name wrong, mm-hmm. but they would then interpret my accent to be somebody who wasn't educated, mm-hmm. somebody who um, was... There's a bit of a stereotype in Liverpool mm-hmm. um, about people maybe um, being dishonest or stealing things. And I would get that actually in the workplace. Being criminalised. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just because of my accent. Mm-hmm. Um, how I would pronounce certain words. I used to get laughed at in big meetings. And so all of these things, they just fueled me with a fire to prove people wrong. And that was what kept me going in industry. And the darkest moments of, you know, I experienced bullying in the workplace. Mm-hmm. I experienced... Um, completely unfair treatment um people making decisions about my pay that that wasn't fair and wasn't just in comparison with others mm-hmm. being on a graduate scheme that was you know um a challenge it was a fairly new graduate scheme so there were lots of learnings mm-hmm. lots of positives came out of that but also lots of challenges and so I'd faced all of these things and every time something was you know something happened an experience happened every time 
I felt like something was unjust towards me. That just fueled me 10 times over to come back and fight it. Mm -hmm. And so when I got made redundant, which was a real blow to me because that I did not see that coming at all. Um, when I got made redundant and the opportunity came to present, uh, so the opportunity arose to set up a business. Mm-hmm. Yes, in my mid twenties, I, I do admit that was very early to set up a consultancy business in HR, but I did it because I was following what the market was telling me, mm-hmm. and I really remember people that I had respected and inspired me and had been mentors said to me what are you doing? Are you sure this is what you want to do? And I remember thinking, oh, maybe this is a bit too much. Maybe I've bitten a little bit off more than I can chew. Um, But I did it, and I did it well. And it served its purpose for what I needed it to do Mm -hmm. at the time. And, you know, was I going to be a millionaire after setting up my own business? No, but that was Mm -hmm. never my intention. My intention was to get through the pandemic and to hopefully get get a PhD. Mm and the consultancy stuff was just while I was kind of, you know, trying to figure out what it was that I wanted to do after being made redundant. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know whether that answers your question fully, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the question related to having limited resources. Yeah. Um, coming from lower working class conditions. Mm-hmm. And in your case, coming from Liverpool, where a lot of people, I think, from other parts of the UK attach a certain... Yes. ...stereotypical yeah. image to it, demonise yeah. certain... Um, individuals that come from Liverpool and have the Scouse accent mm. maybe. And so you were you just mentioned so many emotional and practical challenges that you faced and that you took as grounds of inspiration to really fuel you to to do something that scared you but you still did it. Yeah. Something that made you feel uncomfortable. But I think also there is never a right time. No, whether when it, whether when it comes to to things like um, starting up your own business or even family planning. Yeah. Or and then also going into a PhD. So you I would almost say you had moments where you maybe faced in your life some more financial security because you had a job in industry. Mm. And then, um, and I'm not saying that starting up your own business makes uh, promises a lot of good money. That's not mm. my point. But I'm saying you then transitioned back into academia. Yes. Why? I think that's a question yeah, that no, many of is. us are curious about. Yeah, no, um, thank you for that. And. Yeah, when you mentioned about resources, which I'll just touch on first, and I think the resources, I always tried to recognise that this is what I do have rather than this is what I don't have. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So here's what I do have, what can I do with what I have? And it's about being resourceful mm-hmm. rather than highlighting what I what resources I don't have versus what I do. Because if I thought about all the things that I don't have mm-hmm. all the time, I would probably never do anything. Yeah, I think yeah. compared to looking at the glass as either yes. half full or half empty. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I always try to look at, never never mind if it's halfway there, just mm-hmm. what is there? Is there something in there? <laughs> if there is, If there is something in there, then I can do something yeah. with it. And and that I guess is is my mantra, and that's how I approach life. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the PhD, I remember going to an open day in university, and I must give credit to University of Liverpool actually because my master's experience. I remember I told you that I'd have a story later on. Mm-hmm. This is it. <laughs> I got to day one of University of Liverpool. I remember getting my offer letter through and thinking, how the hell have I managed to secure an offer at a red brick university? I was told when I was younger, I would never even be able to walk in one. And we still made it. And we made it, (laughs) yeah. And I remember coming on the first day, walking past the Philharmonic, which is where lots of us graduate. And I remember thinking, oh, that'll be me in a few years' time. And that was what I held on to Mm -hmm. while I was really struggling with managing both. And I remember getting here and thinking, oh gosh, I'm not really supposed to be here. I've really got to set my game up because I'm I'm not like these other people in the room. And it's really silly now I laugh about it because the truth is, is lots of people go in on their first day and feel a real sense of dread and yeah lost and they don't know where they're going and they they, you know they don't know what the expectations are out of space yes and I remember sitting through the first lecture and walking out the lecture and thinking I've got to do this for two years now and um because it was a two-year part-time program Mm -hmm. and I thought "There's, there's too much resting on this and all I wanted to do was run away I'll be really honest so there have been lots of times where I thought Maybe, maybe this is not for me. Maybe I should have just quit while I was ahead, you know, mm. because this this could make or break me, really, because I was working ridiculous hours and I'd committed to this master's, mm-hmm. which it was also a big commitment. Even at part time, there was mm-hmm. a lot of work to do. And so why I said I've got to give credit to University of Liverpool is because throughout my two years, I wouldn't have got through my master's if it wasn't for some of the staff at mm-hmm. the university. Um, and you know some of the module leaders I worked with were incredibly supportive mm-hmm. um, and celebrated my work experience, yeah. which I never thought would be celebrated. I thought it, it was doesn't matter, doesn't matter mm-hmm. that I've you know got nearly ten years of experience yeah. in it. That that didn't matter. What matters was that I was I I had always very much separated them, and they inspired me that you can bring those things together. It was a very immersive course. We had lots of guest speakers, and I related to them a lot. Um, again, always very studious, always the one to put a hand up and ask a question, mm-hmm. which I think did help me at that time, but also um, was producing really good work as well, mm-hmm. was listening to feedback. I'd be that student who'd, you know, contact the module leader and thank them, but also ask for help if I needed it, mm-hmm. which really put me outside of my comfort zone because I, I don't really like to ask for help, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. It's not a great skill of mine. <laughs> Although I'm learning it. Yeah, I'm learning when to say, actually, this is too much. I need help. Mm -hmm. And so I met um, a couple of people from careers along my two years. I then, I remember going to some careers talks and I remember talking to some advisors and, you know, a couple of situations where they say, there isn't really much we can do for you. I had that quite a lot because Mm -hmm. I had this industry experience. I wasn't going into an entry-level graduate job. I was already an industry professional and there didn't seem to be a space for me. It's almost like being overqualified for certain things and still whilst being underqualified for other things. Exactly. It's a real, you know, paradoxical situation. You Mm -hmm. sort of... And it it is a bit of an out-of-body experience because you think, well, where can I go? You know, where where do you go if if you can't get help there, then where else can you get help, you know? This feeling of belonging. Exactly. Where do I belong? Exactly. And I grappled with that. And I remember having, when I got made redundant and, you know, I was 
in the midst of doing a bit of consulting and it set up my business and things were going okay mm-hmm. but I still I thought this is not the end and I remember when I finished in HR thinking I've got to do more than this a couple of months early I'd had a lot go on in my family um personally I'll be I'll share you know like my dad had passed away in mm-hmm. the November I had a really bad car crash in, in the December sorry and then you know so I had a lot going on and I mm-hmm. remember um, my memory is a bit patchy for that period of time in my life anyway but I remember going to a PhD talk and hearing somebody from another university I think he was from Birmingham mm-hmm. and he spoke about a PhD experience completely different subject yeah and I remember sitting there and thinking okay so I've done the undergraduate I've done that and I got I got there I'm getting the master's and I'm doing really well here. Mm-hmm. Shocking myself every time I submitted a paper, it was a traumatic experience. But then I'd get the mark and I'd go, oh, you know, I can't Why do this. Why did I spiral for 24 yeah, hours? Yeah. Crying, hysterically <laughs> laughing. Yeah, that hasn't really gone away, I'm going to yeah. be honest. But, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd go through that and then I'd, I'd hear this, this person speak and I thought, can I do this now? Can I do a PhD? Am I going to do this? And I remember sitting in a, in a coffee shop near campus that I frequent, and we've been there many a time. Mm-hmm. And I remember, it was actually my husband I was speaking to, and I said, you know, what do you think about me doing a PhD? And he's extremely supportive. He's like, you know, mm-hmm. do what you want, whatever whatever makes you happy. Yeah. Um, and he really, like, he celebrates the fact that I'm, yeah. you know, super um, into learning and yeah. um, in fact have inspired him to do a, I, well I will take the credit for inspiring him to do a <laughs> qualification uh, but yeah, um, yeah and that sort of went away because all the family stuff mm-hmm. went on and I was trying to finish my master's and you know trying to work through a lot of things and then yeah and then I remember the, the calling came out mm-hmm. and, and Sadie Lorty in careers um, she um sent me an, uh, a little note and we caught up and she said have you thought about applying for this PhD there's funding available mm-hmm. and this must have been I think the, the deadline was in April at the end of April mm-hmm. and I had and it was like early April so, so there was like three weeks or something to like turn this application around and I remember thinking like am I actually going to do this mm-hmm. like am I going to go for this we were, we were in lockdown and I thought well apart from that assignment that I've got to get in at the end of the month I really I've got nothing better to do so mm-hmm. and work had gone a bit quiet and I thought well I might as well what's the worst that can happen yeah, yeah. exactly worst thing they can say no mm-hmm. and if they say no then maybe I'll have learned about the application process yeah. because remember I did go to that talk a couple of months ago mm-hmm. and I did have a conversation and it was it's always been the thought as it you know, if I think back to eight-year-old me, who who very boldly asked a doctor when we were going to one of my granddad's appointments, you know, what does a doctor do? Mm-hmm. And if and I thought about that in this in this really like sort of weird period of being in lockdown and mm-hmm. going out the house for an hour a day and um, to walk the dog or whatever, and I thought like, God, eight-year-old me would never have dreamed that, you know, now I'd be yeah. applying for this. And I had so many things go through my mind. But I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do it. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Yeah. And so I did. And yeah. so that is how, to answer yeah. your question in a very long-winded way, <laughs> that is how I ended up. Yeah. I think I by the time I'd sort of set up my business, I'd realised that being a HR business partner was not going to fulfil me forever. Yeah. Because it, like, I just had this passion to do mm-hmm. something else. And mm-hmm. this was the something else. So. Thank you for sharing that and for being so vulnerable with your personal challenges along the way. And one thing I want to say is that when things get hard, 
I want us to remember that eight-year-old Ibrahim Malika would yeah. be so damn proud. Yes. <laughs> and um, especially because what you're basically saying is sometimes it takes one or two or three or just one individual to really believe in you. Yeah. And to tell you, you can do this. Yeah. And for that to give you the courage to try something out that you don't feel ready for. Yeah. And um, I had three people in my life doing that for me because I never thought I would be doing a PhD. In fact, I was told during my master's that a professor could not give me a recommendation letter because they did not believe that I was good enough for a PhD. Wow. Well, here I am going into my second year having a chat with you about this, and it feels really, really good. And yes, I won't be a medical doctor, as my dad always expected me to be, <laughs> but I will be some kind of doctor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, and I think there are so many rewarding things about making that scary choice, transitioning from industry, um, from something that you have grown comfortable with. Yeah. Stepping out of that, going back into academia. Yeah. What is the most rewarding aspect of making the choice to step back into academia, do a part-time master's, and then stepping into a PhD? So I think, funnily enough, you say, what's the what's the most rewarding? Was it the rewarding choice? Rewarding, yeah. It is choice, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that, for me, the most rewarding aspect yeah. of doing this and doing this journey is that I've had the privilege and the honour to choose what I want to do, what makes me happy. The gift, and this is going to sound really cheesy, so, you know, listeners, you know, I know this, I sound like a real geek right now, but... (laughs) If you're you're doing a PhD, are you really, can you say you're you're not a geek? Yeah, you pretty much, um, (laughs) that comes with the job description, doesn't it? But... You know, to be it's I think it's a gift to be able to research about a topic that you're passionate about, that you're yeah. interested in and you can contribute to. That for me is like the dream. You yeah. know, it I really don't care about obviously I need enough money to live, but mm-hmm. you know, all those things that, that you care about, I think or I cared about when I was younger, about, mm-hmm. you know, I want a really good job and I want to be successful and I wanna break the the generational kind of barrier and I want to you know move to a position where we I don't worry about money anymore all mm-hmm. of those like dreams and aspirations of where I realize now like we're fueled by like lots of things that society was telling me yeah whereas like the gift to be able to do a PhD and do research about yeah. something that interests you I think that has been yeah. the most rewarding thing because how many people can say that they do that not yeah. many and how yeah. many people can speak about the privilege of making a choice yeah. when it comes to directing your work. Exactly. And you are the the one who has power over that. Yeah. You are in control. And I think that in itself is a privilege. So thank you so much for sharing that. And to round up our interview today, mm-hmm. how do you hope your research will bend boundaries? So thank you for that question. So I hope that my research will bend boundaries in in several ways. So I hope that I'll be able to contribute theoretically um, and be able to to use a different perspective to help to explain inequity. But I also hope that there's a practical solution as well. So it goes back to the interplay between academia and practice Mm -hmm. in that I hope that it will bend boundaries and that it will actually... um, 
tangibly impact as well and change the way we think about things. Will I be able to break down, you know, hundreds of years of systems and processes um, and inequity? No, that's, you know, that my research is not going to do all of that. But even if it contributes in a small way, I think that's how I'm bending boundaries. Thank you so much. And with that being said, thank you so much for everyone taking your time listening to us. Thank you, Malika, for sharing your personal and practical experiences, for being so honest and vulnerable with us. And we are looking forward to seeing you on next month's episode. And now let's get back to Saren and Megan for a debrief. So, guys, what struck you about this interview with Malika? Uh, maybe Megan. Okay, so um, I really liked um, Malika's interview. I thought it was really interesting. One thing that um, struck me was um, listening to Malika's experience of going into from a work, work like industry. Um, I'm always academia always has different words for stuff. So industry is work, I guess. Um, yeah, I hadn't and, heard that before. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, but yeah, I think it is like oh, we're going back and forth and. Anyway, but yeah, so I, like Malika talked about the different types of work that you do. So in uh, industry or work, it's um, a lot of kind of outputs and mm-hmm. um, not not like a superficial work, but a lot <laughs> of like tasks and completing and and that sort of thing. And I think, and then in academia, it's more deep work. So you can spend a long time like looking at just one concept, or you can be really thinking about your word choices considering I think when you're doing like interviews and stuff you're considering like your positionality so like who you are when you're doing the research you know like I'm like okay yeah I'm a black person from London so and I'm gonna be interviewing those kinds of people you're thinking about how that impacts your work and that's just not something you really do (laughs) in normal work especially when I was working as a researcher it wasn't that sort of stuff wasn't considered it was more about I don't know, getting outputs and kind of proving the outputs. So, yeah, that that really struck me, the the different mm-hmm. types of work that you might do while you're, um, yeah, and, and adjusting to that as well when you move into doing the PhD. And when you were working in that job that was like almost like, I don't know, I don't know what the word is, but like, you know, just a normal job, but being a researcher, like when it comes to ethics and stuff, like in academia, we spend a lot, a lot of time talking about our ethical approach and thinking about like different Mm -hmm. scenarios. And if they are, you know, what we would do in that circumstance to be as ethical as possible, like how does that work in terms of, I don't know, it's not like commercial research, but like research that isn't academia, is it? Is it the same or is it like more bureaucratic? Like, is it just like there's a checklist of things that we need to do? Yeah, I, I don't even, I can't even remember doing any ethical ethics stuff. So that <laughs> maybe enough. tells you something. <laughs> but it, it is like, you would have consent forms mm. as, as normal. Um, but a lot of the research that I did was that was like, that was like um, workplace research. So it's about like employee engagement. So the interviewing employees in their workplace. And it did feel like, and I don't know if it's like this everywhere, but it felt like we got the consent from the organisation and that was the biggest thing. Mm. And then also you would check with the organisation what you wrote as well to make sure that they were like happy with it. Mm. So it was like a very different dynamic. It's more, I guess, slightly less control and also 
for the employees I definitely had this more than once they they gave me fake mm-hmm. names and and they didn't really trust me because I was like my position was coming in as part of their workplace stuff so mm. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I don't remember doing any ethical things except for, like, um, consent forms and then getting approval from the organisation afterwards. Mm. It's kind of like, once I did the interviews, it was like, I didn't talk to the participants again. Mm. Um, Yeah, which, yeah, it's a very different um, process. Mm. Yeah, but you're right about um, that kind of, like, deep thinking. And I know that, you know, when I've previously had jobs that were outside of academia, like, in some ways there's like more work to do mm. but it's almost like it's a different kind of kind of work that I feel like often as you say like requires less like deep interrogation of what you're doing like probably not all the time but in the work that I was doing um just like a kind of classic sort of office job and stuff and I find I actually find deep thinking really really hard and I find that part of academia like it kind of is the whole of academia <laughs> but I find that really difficult like just having to sit with discomfort and sit with not knowing and sit with like just thinking about things sometimes for a really long time before you take any action. Yeah, it's funny because sometimes I know in the past I've been like, oh, why do, <laughs> not why do we have to think about it so much? But sometimes it's like, it's not that deep. Mm. But then there is value in thinking about things deeply as well. So mm. it's like sometimes I, do we have to, do I have to write a thousand words about my positionality I'm like sometimes I don't think it's worth it but then it's like it is actually quite a valuable part of the research as well so it is confusing Mm. how about you Ibu what was your kind of biggest takeaway from Malika's interview I think there were so many valuable things that were said especially when people make that decision to like transition back into yeah, education, especially into when it's a PhD, because there are so many dynamics involved in a PhD. And I think one thing that we were discussing was about like feeling, feeling like terror and feeling so frightened and so vulnerable when you are in the midst of writing your proposal and you realize that, or you have that striking thought you're like I don't know what I'm actually writing about I don't know where I'm going with this I don't know what I'm doing here should I really be doing this am I qualified enough do I have enough skills to conduct research to do a PhD and I think oftentimes it's so easy to get like um to to drown in these very very like strong and valid but also toxic thoughts because we always think about what we don't have, the skills that we don't have, um, the things we are not equipped with, um, especially if we maybe happen to come from a background where, you know, we don't necessarily have like parents who have degrees or went really to universities. And something Malika said was that at some point she just made that decision where she said, okay, what do I have? Is there something? And if there is something, I'm going to take that and I'm going to make, I'm going to build something else from that. And that was when I like brought in the like analogy of looking, you can look at the glass of water as half full or half empty. So, and with that, I think there's a certain vulnerability 
to that, but it's also growth when you come to that conclusion, when you're like, I'm just going to write this proposal and I'm going to send it off because I will have given it my best. And if it works out, it works out. And if not, try again, right? Especially if you really, really have passion for it and if you really want it. But I think the biggest injustice we can do to ourselves is like by sabotaging ourselves and just not taking that leap of faith. Um, because that's with many things in life. Um, and also, I feel like there's always going to be a way. There, there always is. And doing a PhD is such a privilege. So that, that really stuck with me. And, and kind of, sorry, just, yeah, what you're saying, I think I definitely had that because like, I, I never got a first in any of my degrees, even though I have so many. <laughs> I have like three now. And it's like, I've never got a first. I remember like when I was applying for the PhDs, people were like, if you don't have a first, you're not going to get funding, basically. That was like something people... And in in one of the universities I applied for, they literally said, we they don't even take you for the, through the first round. And um, so they didn't even... The university didn't even send your application off to the DCP who ended up funding me um but like it's just like they didn't do that because they were like mm. this person might not get it and I remember that being when I was waiting to hear back about funding I was like oh I probably won't get it because I didn't have a first and all this stuff um mm. but then like you said I have other stuff you know my work experience my life my abilities and all this stuff um but I definitely was I kind of I wrote myself off. I did the applications, but I was like, mm, well, maybe not. This isn't going to happen. Mm. And I did get offered funding from two places. So, you know, you can. Like, it's kind of like, in Especially. hindsight, I'm like, wow, I, yeah. Those people, the other people that didn't put me through, it was a similar application. I might have got it from mm-hmm. there as well, but they didn't. Yeah. So question yourself. Yeah. And I think just, just real quick to that, like that's something I said in the interview, like sometimes it just takes that one person that believes in you and that allows you to like Mm. believe in yourself. Like you don't have to have a whole squad behind you cheering you on. I think having that one person is enough. Yeah, it does definitely take just having like one person believe in you for it to kind of make so much difference and I also was thinking about this when I heard Malika talk about how um about how I think she said that she was encouraged by like a careers worker at her uni to apply for a PhD and I was thinking about like how for me as well like personally like the experience like the role of like other academics in encouraging um people to apply is really really important and you know like I don't think I ever ever would have applied if it hadn't been for the person who um who supervised me for my undergrad like helping me apply um because it's such like an exclusive process as well like applying for for a PhD is like really really like hard to understand Mm. because I remember when I first heard about it being so confused because it was like you have to apply to a university but then you also have to if you want funding you also have to apply to like a funding body and sometimes those 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 applications are connected and sometimes they're not and like it just like so Mm -hmm. much like red tape and like so much like really difficult information to understand and like I think it's really really stressful and I think that's academics I hope that like 
most academics if they're good academics are like aware of like how Mm -hmm. important that role is in like encouraging people who especially might not have like other academics in their lives or anything to apply and to show them that they their ideas are like worth something but I don't know I think it's really 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 important and something that's not always talked about so much and does seem to vary by institution like I went to a very small institution for my undergrad where there was like a lot of emphasis put on like relationships between students and lecturers and stuff whereas I've heard of like other institutions literally a 10 minute walk away where academics don't won't give a student the time of day so it's kind of yeah it's it's confusing and and actually like that point was something else from Malika's interview I thought was really interesting where um she kind of talked about um I think it was like with presenting or with other stuff like um she'd had really positive experiences like not to cut people being quite supportive within academia and like I think a lot of time on like Twitter and other places it seems like uh like academics are really mean it's sometimes what mm. you get the impression and um that hasn't been my experience yet obviously early days and everything but it's been very positive and uh supportive and, and like you said Sarah and it's like I think what my supervisors helped me through the process of applying as well and they were all really mm. nice during that process so it's like yeah you can see that there are people who are trying to mm. have that good relationship um and it was nice to hear Malika say that because I was like oh yeah that's how I I'm feeling right now but sometimes you know when you hear people complaining then you're like I'm having a great time it you just sound like a dickhead (laughs) so you don't want to be like I don't know I haven't heard that but yeah that was another point that stuck out to me so those are our key takeaways from this week's interview with Malika thanks so much Malika for being such an awesome guest So that's it from us for now. Thanks for listening to Bending Boundaries, a podcast sponsored by the Northwest Social Science Doctoral Training Partnership, which aims to encourage a broader range of applicants to showcase our work and the work of others and amplify the intersectional voices of diverse PhD students. We'll be back with our next guest in one month's time. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or want to tell us how, a bit more about how you're bending boundaries in or out of academia, tweet us at, at @bendingboundariespod or follow us on Instagram at bendingboundariespodcast or you can even email us at bendingboundariespod at gmail.com. Okay, bye. Thank you. See, See you next time. <laughs>